Well, we have been studying on Sunday night one of these forgotten, neglected books, the book of Lamentations. And as we study those first three poems, I think you would presume that chapter three would have been the great finale. I mean, we ended on the pinnacle of great is the faithfulness of our God. His mercies are new every morning. And so he just starts speaking of hope as he's praying to God and he's declaring all this before God that even in the midst of his suffering, here he is and he is declaring the faithful message of God and how God will keep his promises and God is going to deliver. And we describe the study of of lamentations as as a mountain peak and that in chapter one, you're at the base and in chapter Chapter two, you're halfway up. In chapter three, you're at the pinnacle. You've you've come to the top of the mountain, which for us in our society, that's how you end a book. You always just put it right at the top, you know, and you you walk away and you're good to go. But that's not how this book goes. And I think it's important for us to, to notice that here we have seen this message of hoping in the faithfulness of God and hoping in the promises of God, trusting in the Lord and praying to the Lord. But that does not mean that we're now in a book of the Pollyanna of sorts where it's rainbows and unicorns and cupcakes. And so see, everything is just fine and dandy and we'll just go on and they lived happily ever after. That's not reality. And the book of Lamentations doesn't paint some kind of false reality or false hope. We come into the fourth poem and it comes crashing back to the earth. That just because he has hope in God and is expecting God's faithful response, he is still in great anguish. The city is in great pain. The devastation continues. The consequences of their sin remain. Their grief is great. And so just because that he is uh, able to express this hope in God does not nullify the fact that there is still an immense amount of grief and pain and suffering, which is what is expressed then here in our fourth poem, Lamentations 4. One of the things that you'll notice as well before we read some of this, this poem is that there is a movement that is happening throughout this great poem. The, the first poem there, chapter one, if you look at it again, spent most of the time talking about the destruction of the city, talking about how Jerusalem has fallen. The splendor of the city has been tarnished and now is gone. We moved into the second poem and we saw Lamentations 2, the destruction of the temple. And so here is then the glory of Israel, the temple and the Ark of the Covenant. They are no more. So we move from city to temple. The third poem described a lot of the personal pain of the prophet. That first half, he is describing his own suffering and describing all that he is going through. Remember in that third poem, he's talking about how God has put arrows in through his heart and into his kidneys and the pain is overwhelming with grief. And so he's describing and expressing his own personal pain that he has through all of this, yet a dependence upon the faithfulness of God. And now we come to the fourth poem, and what you're going to read about is uh, perhaps the most gruesome of all the five poems. It's very tough to read, because now the, the prophet here is going to describe the devastation of the people of the city. We've gone from the city as buildings to the temple and its glory to the prophet's personal pain and suffering 
to now he's recording the pain and suffering of the people of the city of Jerusalem. So let's read the first 13 verses of this poem. Again, an acrostic. So each verse starting a new line in the Hebrew alphabet that's completely lost in English translation, but still an acrostic. Lamentations 4. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, a work of the potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like a sapphire. Now their faces, faces blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by the lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled the fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. For this was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquity of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Just shocking imagery that this fourth poem kicks into. And the first 11 verses is really a description of the wrath that now God has poured out on his very people. It is, it is too much to bear. In fact, you get almost hopeful when you read verse 1 and go, well, the gold has dimmed, the, the pure gold has changed, the holy stones lie scattered in the streets at the head of every street. And you think he's talking about buildings. Oh, the, the gold is now tarnished and the stones are just laying in the streets. But you read verse 2 and recognize that's not what he's talking about at all. In verse he says, I'm talking about the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in gold have now been cast aside like they were earthen pottery that has been shattered and tossed to the side. He is describing that the precious sons of Zion are, are tarnished gold. And as he speaks of the stones that are laying in the streets, he's speaking of the bodies that are strewn in the streets because of God's wrath being poured out. And so he's using this kind of imagery to speak of they used to be worth their weight in gold they were precious and beautiful and you read some of that language the riches that they had the blessings that they had but now all of that is gone and they are now tarnished and to be regarded 
as earthen pots. In fact, he uses imagery here of, uh, of animals that have no regard for their young whatsoever. In particular, verse 3, we know pretty well about ostriches and what they do regarding their eggs. They lay the eggs and forget all about them and never come back. And that's what he says what's happened to us. We have become cruel like the ostriches in the woods. We have been neglected and forgotten. We have just been completely destroyed because of our sins. We've experienced the wrath of God and there is no one to help. There is no one to care. There's no one to comfort. There's no respite at all. And so he just just comes into this anguish and speaks of this difficulty that they are experiencing. Verse 4, speaking of the infants and the children starving and thirsting in the streets. Verse 5, the, the, even the rich are perishing in the streets. Verse 6, he says that it was a greater punishment on them than it, than it was for Sodom. And then continues to say, the people who were killed by the sword were better off than those who remained and are dying of hunger all over the streets. He goes on and speaks of, the, their bones there in verses 7 and 8, their bodies blackened and their skin is shriveled to their bones. Verse 10, he describes the women being compassionate as they eat their own children. All of this comes down to this finale in verse 11 and just simply says, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. He kindled a fire in Zion and he has consumed its very foundations. What a description of the suffering people here. And to remember, these are God's people. This is not the destroying of Babylon. This is not the destroying of Egypt, Assyria, Moab, Ammon, where we would go, yes, it is due to them. You know, here comes the judgment. This is Israel. This is the people of God. This is Jerusalem. This is the temple where God said his name would dwell. This is the land that God had promised to these people. These are his people. And yet here is this reality that God has now poured out, invented out his wrath, poured out his anger consuming the very foundations and it is a reminder about how the wrath of God can't be neglected and forgotten it is something we're going to look at a little bit later tonight but just to put into our minds as we open into the beginning of this lament to consider how easy it is for people to think oh God is a loving compassionate God he would never do something like that there couldn't be a judgment he couldn't be wrathful against his creation he couldn't be angry at all he is always joyed he's never going to do something like that here is the prophet writing and saying look at what God has done it is God who did this God brought this on us. In fact, what it continues to do here for the prophet is do something I think is very important is here in this fourth poem, he's able to step back coming down the other side of the mountain, if you will, and and is able to just reflect on what has happened. It's almost like a taking of the inventory of what has taken place to look at what God has done, to look at what they are experiencing and to be able to draw an important conclusion in verse 13. And I think verse 13 is the hub of this poem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests. 
What we saw in the first few poems is really just inexpressible pain and distress, right? We saw the prophet just simply go, look at what has happened. Lord, look and see. There's no one to comfort, no one to help. And he's just just beside himself and all the pain that he is experiencing and all that he is witnessing. And now we're coming to a point as we move through this journey of pain and grief that he's able to step back and notice he's able to quantify the problem. He's able to examine and go, I know why this happened. I know what was going on. I know the situation now. And he's able to point out in verse 13, it was the prophets and the priests for their sins. These things have happened. And he's doing something that is really important is to be able to reflect on life circumstances, to quantify the problem and to learn from those things. And I think that is often a temptation to failure when we go through trials and suffering and pain and grief and difficulties. The temptation is to fail to attempt to learn from what we're going through. In fact, Stephen Whitley, and if you notice in the song we just sang, talks about learning all the worth of pain. I thought that was a really interesting line when we sang that. Learning all the worth, that doesn't sound like fun. Learning all the worth of pain? I I don't want to learn all the worth of pain. (laughs) And then we just said those words. Learning all the worth of pain. Learning all the might that lies. That's what the prophet is stepping back and doing as he is having some perspective on what has happened and saying, what can be learned from this? And he stands back and says, I know one of the problems that we had. We know it's because of our sins that all of this has fallen upon us, that the wrath of God has come. And he's able to look at prophets and priests and say they failed in their obligations before God. And that's why the wrath of God has come. And that's really what the New Testament is often doing when it's talking about how we're being refined by fire and how, like James will talk about there in James 1, count it all joy, my friends, when you meet trials of various kinds, whether you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That can't happen. To be able to count it all joy when we encounter trials and to have that produce steadfastness and have its full effect if there's not reflection about what we're going through. If we're not becoming introspective and going, I need to learn from this. What is this doing for me? How is this going to change me? How does this change my relationship with God? How does this increase my faith? How can I become more what God wants me to be? We can't allow pain and suffering and difficulty just to be, okay, I'm hurting, I'm in pain, woe is me, self-pity. Let me just try to get out of it and not try to learn from it. I think it's another temptation of what happens, particularly in trials, but also in grief and pain. As we go through the trial, we will have the tendency to say to God, okay, Lord, I've learned my lesson. I understand now. Make it stop. All right, I got it. Okay, okay, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, this hurts, I understand, you know. And we're unwilling to go through the process of the learning, learning all the worth of pain, learning what is to come from the trial, learning that all is to come from that. 
I think again, when we study the book of Job, you see that essence of failure in what he's enduring, where he's saying, no, no, you've got this all wrong. There's nothing for me to learn here. You just need to fix this. And that's not the way God operates. And you see something powerful in this lamentation that as he's expressing everything that he sees, he does have the ability to step back and go, there is a reason to be able to step back and learn from this so that I can be able to understand how my relationship with God can improve. And that's what he's doing here is expressing, here's the cause of this fall. Here's the cause of our grief. Here's what has happened to us. It is our sins that have brought this very thing about. And James is so useful to us with that to say, count it all joy. Well, that requires reflection to say that's going to produce steadfastness and produce the maturity that we need. And that requires that introspection that reflection that going to god with this trial with this pain that you see him doing throughout this lamentation to be able to offer that before god and then i think it's really interesting to point out the particular sin that he identifies and you read it again in verse 13 and he says there was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests he says they shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous That's really quite a declaration there of what was going on in the days of the fall of Jerusalem and what was going on with that. In particular, what is shocking about it is to identify the priests and to identify the prophets. These are the two groups of people who were supposed to be the teachers of the law, the servants of God, the proclaimers of God's message. That's what the priests and the prophets were doing. Prophets would receive the direct revelation of God and proclaim it to the people. The priests are doing their sacrifices and their services before God there in the temple. And they're to be the teachers of the law and tell them what, what the law says and to be that kind of spiritual leader. And notice it's the very spiritual leaders, the people who were to proclaim the truth of God, to proclaim the the message of God, he puts his finger on them and says, look at what they were doing. Rather than helping the people be clean by teaching them the ways of God, he's made, they're making them unclean. They're violating the very law they're supposed to be proclaiming. They're supposed to be the teachers of the law. They're slaying the righteous in the streets. It's one of the reasons why you see the unfortunate outcome of Jeremiah over and over again when you read that prophecy. And no doubt, if it's not for God's protection, which he promised to Jeremiah and said, I'm basically not going to let you die. He probably would have died. They were not going to listen to him. They wanted to hear what they wanted to hear. In fact, the book of Jeremiah, just over and over again, one of the condemnations that he gives of these people is that, You didn't want to listen to the truth. You didn't really want to hear the word of God. You just wanted prophets to come in and tell you, oh, the Babylonians are going to go away in two years. In two years, everything will be fine. Just give it a little more time and everything will be fine. God is going to restore this place. God is going to make everything better. And so Jeremiah would come in and go, that is not true. And then they throw him in a pit. And then they get all the other prophets come along and go, no, it's all going to be fine. We're all going to do good. And Jeremiah would walk in and go, no, it's not. And they throw him in a cistern. And then they'd come along and go, no, no, Babylon's never going to come back again. Jeremiah would go, no, no, we're going to suffer quite a bit. They're going to come again and destroy us if we don't submit. And then they throw him in a dungeon. 
And that's what he's identifying is the people who are supposed to be telling you the truth. The people who are supposed to be expressing the very words of God. Not only are they not teaching the truth, they're breaking it themselves. They're violating the very words of God. It is a warning against what happens against inadequate spiritual leadership. It is so interesting to me that when you read all of the sins that Judah was committing, I mean, we read about in Chronicles, Manasseh, how Manasseh's tied to the great sins and the fall and demise of Judah. That here in Lamentations 4, it goes out of its way to identify, you know what the problem was? Our leaders didn't do the job. The leaders failed. And because of their failure... This has happened. In fact, did you catch that? That began in verse 13. This was for the sins of the prophets and the iniquities of the priests. Inadequate spiritual leadership. Isn't it any wonder? Remember what Jesus has to deal with when he comes on the scene? Matthew 15 is a great example, but it happens over and over again during the ministry of Jesus. Here you have in, in, in verse 12, chapter 15, the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard your, this saying? Now, stop and let's get that context. I'm going to put all that on the screen. These Pharisees are upset because the disciples were not washing their hands according to the traditions of the elders. And so the Pharisees have come to Jesus and said, Now, why are your disciples not following the traditions like they were supposed to? And in that section, if you remember, basically it says, These people honor with me, their lips with their hearts are far from me, and may they worship, you know, the treated as doctrines and commandments of men. You're just not doing what God says. And so now the disciples come to Jesus and say, Now, don't you know that when you said that, they were pretty insulted by that. They didn't take that very well when you told them that they're following their own rules and not God's rules. They don't really care about God. They didn't have a heart for worship. So Jesus then says, he answers, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, they will fall into a pit. He basically says, you know what they're going to do? They're going to lead this nation astray. Here are the religious leaders, your Pharisees and your scribes, the ones who took it upon themselves to teach the people. And he says, guess what they're doing? They're taking them right to the pit. They're not leading how they ought to lead. It is a really important reminder for us. God's word is often hard to hear. I don't want to hear God tell me I'm not living right. I'm not acting right. I'm not thinking right. I'm not behaving right. I want to go to all the passages in the scriptures that say, all right, yay, Brent, doing good. Didn't lie, didn't cheat, didn't steal, didn't murder. All right, you know, all right, everybody pat each other on the back. Great Sunday morning lesson. Let's all go home. We didn't murder anybody today. All right, yay us. You know, we are Christians. We're all going to heaven. We don't want to hear the hard things. We don't want to hear, okay, maybe our hearts are tied to this world. Maybe we're not worshiping the way God desires. Maybe not giving Him everything that we can. Maybe our hearts are entangled by the cares of the world. We don't want to hear those things. And yet recognize the Word of God is truly the grace of God to pull us back to walking in the light. 
that those hard things that we would just appreciate them and never reject them, to hear the hard things, to take the toes being stomped on, if you will, and go, I needed that so that I can walk in the light again and be faithful to my God. It is so easy for us to be defensive to the Word of God, to hear what God says and go, well, that's not me. That's what... I sure wish brother so-and-so would have heard that one. They really needed that one. But I, you know, I am a-okay. It is easy to be defensive to the scriptures. But that's where the failure comes. The failure comes when leaders are not proclaiming the truth of the message and the people just want to hear what they want to hear. And that was the circumstance by which the lamentation is written. This was for the sins of the prophets and the priests. They're neglecting the word of God and the people were happy for it. They were thrilled. They were fun. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to hear the tough messages. They didn't want anything that Jeremiah had to say at all. It is a great reminder to us that we need the truth and we need those things. And anytime I think you've ever come up to me and said, boy, that really stepped on my toes. I think my response has always been, Because they stepped on mine first. They do. The whole reason it hurt so much is because it hurt me so much when I was studying it. And I'm just sharing it with you going, yeah, experience my pain that I just had three days ago. Here it is for you too. (laughs) That's what the Word of God is intended to do. God's Word's not intended just to pat us on the back and say, oh, you're doing great. Keep on going your way all the way to the depths of darkness and sin. But it is the grace of God to say, you're not doing what's right. Let's turn our ways back to God and let us walk in the light again. And I think that that brings us full circle to reflect to the reflection that the author has. That here he is recognizing that the wrath of God has been vented out on God's people because of their sins. The catalyst has been the prophets and the priests no longer proclaiming the word of God to the people. They are the inadequate spiritual leaders and they have brought these people to their demise and therefore their sins have made them worthless before God. They're cast aside as broken pottery. They're tarnished gold. They're no longer than of the value that they used to be as Israel, as the people of God, but broken pots cast aside and their judgment now must come. And that is really the other weighty point that is made in this lamentation. Jump down to verse 21. Where we read, rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom. Now, step back and go, wait a minute, that's not rejoice and be glad. You just described all your children are dying in the streets for lack of thirst and the mothers are eating their, their children. And this is a horrible scene that's going on here. And he's telling Edom, rejoice and be glad. Now remember, Edom hated Judah. You know, arch rivals, if there's any way to put that in our language, just hated them were part of the reason for the problems there when people were trying to run. They're the ones there that are stopping them from fleeing. We're saying the book of Obadiah, we saw that, that here's Edom and all of their pride and glory, and they are not compassionate toward their brother Judah, but instead are only making matters worse. And so notice then, This is a sarcastic sense that he says this. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of us. But to you also the cup shall pass. 
You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish and he will uncover your sins. Here's the the prophet going, laugh it up, uh, Edom. Yeah, okay, you think this is really great. Sure, laugh it up over there, but it's coming to you too. Yep, we've received our penalty and we've received the wrath of God, but you're going to get it too. Don't think it's not going to happen to you too. That's the imagery that the cup shall pass to you. We have drank from the cup of God's wrath. We have received judgment, but you're going to drink from it too. And that's why he uses that imagery of becoming drunk and stripping yourselves bare. You are going to be blasted full strength with the wrath of God when you drink and this cup comes to you as well. And so what you have here is a reminder that don't think that God's wrath is not going to come for sinfulness. Here is Edom going, yep, they deserved it. Ha <laughs> ha, you got what was coming to you. They were just overjoyed by that. And here's the author pinning this and saying, wait a minute. Nobody's getting out of this. Everybody is going to stand before the wrath of God for their sins. God's not going to just simply overlook sins. It's such an important experience and statement that is being made here. And especially when you look at it there in verse 22. Look at the very last line of the poem. How the fourth poem ends. He will uncover your sins. You're not getting away with anything is what he ends with. They didn't get away with anything. And thus he looks around in the streets of Jerusalem and says, that's the proof that we didn't get away with our sins. And now even he tells them and says, you're not going to get away with it either. we, We have the tendency to really think that. We often want to presume on the grace of God. Oh, we're the people of God. It's going to be fine. It's okay that we commit these kinds of sins. It's okay that we turn our back on God. God doesn't see. God doesn't care. God doesn't know. You know, I've kept on that line over and over again. Do you think God really cares if, fill in the blank, answer? Yes. (laughs) Yes, he does. He absolutely does. Whatever you think he may not care about, he absolutely cares. And that's what is being expressed here. Is don't think you're getting away with your sins. All the sins are going to be uncovered. And we want to read this. And go, well, that was Old Testament God, right? All right, let's go New Testament. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against... Wait, watch your one word to circle in your Bible. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Same message, wrath of God, disobedient, going to happen for all disobedient, all ungodliness. Everybody is under the condemnation. And the temptation is what he says right here in this very verse. The very temptation is to suppress that truth. Well, that doesn't mean me, right? Not me. That's right. He's going to get all those bad people. He's not going to me. I don't care about my sin, your sin. Oh yeah, boy, you are a heathen. You need to go forward every day that possibly can. But me, oh, I'm a saint. I am an angel before God. I'm okay. He's going to uncover your sins. We're not getting away with anything. 
And to think that we are getting away with it is exactly the same foolishness and fallacy of the people of Judah. They said, we're the people of God. We have a relationship with God. We're going to be fine. The temple's here. We're offering our sacrifices. We're a-okay, right? And here's the prophet saying, and look at the bodies strewn in the streets. Are they a-okay? And we can fool ourselves and go, oh, well, my sins are all right. You know, Sunday church, here I am. You know, I'm not that bad. I pray to God every once in a while. I'm a pretty good person. All those other people are the ones that are going to hell. They're the ones really bad. But my sins, they're the low level sins. So it's okay if I do those things because nobody knows about them. Nobody sees them. They're in my closet and nobody's aware of them. And so God doesn't care. God doesn't know. God doesn't see. And just hear the words of how that poem ended that fourth lamentation. You'll uncover your sins. You're not getting away with whatever you think you're getting away with. So it's an important reminder to us, an important reminder. And then to add to it, jump back to verse 17, what he recognizes here. Verse 17, our eyes failed ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. We're looking for a savior. Maybe Egypt will come in and rescue. Somebody will deliver us. And that never happened. And this is the message of the Old Testament. It's the message of the New Testament. It's what God's message has always been. Nobody can save you. You can't save yourself. Nobody's going to come in and save you from your sins. Nobody's going to save you from your mess. You are completely doomed. And here they said, we hope for somebody to come in. Do you think Egypt was going to stand a chance if God's the one directing his wrath against Judah? No, not going to happen. God is the one who brought the judgment. And so the wrath of God was against them. And so what you see him doing is what all that can be done is all that you can do is cry out to God. What else are you going to do? We are deep in our sins. We deserve the wrath of God. All of our sins are before him. All of them are uncovered. They're all before his eyes. You can't save me. I can't save you. We're all completely doomed. And what can possibly be left except to cry out to God? Because He's the only one that can save. He's the only help. He's the only one who can rescue. That's what makes these kinds of New Testament passages perhaps more powerful than we may have realized. And especially if we've grown up in the pews, we've heard a lot of these declarations by God and and, and just don't often maybe catch the weight and, and really the emotional power of what God is saying. As you leave the Old Testament with you're all doomed because of your sins and then you get a glorious statement that says, so while you're still helpless, while you're in that condition, at the right time, Christ died. You have to be moved into that place of understanding where you are before God to appreciate what the New Testament is driving at of the hope that is needed and what the people are looking for. In fact, you'll see it here in verse 20. Notice what he says there in verse 20 of Lamentations 4. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. 
was captured in their pits of whom we said under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. He's referring to either Jehoiachin or Zedekiah and saying, here's this king. And we thought he was going to be our help and our hope. He was going to be the one to save us. We would be under the shadow of his wing and he was going to care for us, protect us and keep us safe from from Babylon. Nope. <laughs> That's what verse 20 is saying. We, we thought, you know, this is what we thought was going to happen. Of whom we said. This is what we said. <clears throat> we needed somebody who was going to be able to do this. And what this is showing is that those earthly kings failed. And all of those kings failed with a purpose. Those kings didn't know they were failing with a purpose. But God knew they were failing with a purpose. To show that we needed the king of righteousness to whom we would be able to run to and to be able to, under the words, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Those kings could not do it. Those kings could not save. Those kings could not give hope. And so all the anticipation is, well, when will we have the king of righteousness who will come and bless us and gather his chicks under his wings and care for them? And that's why Jesus comes along and says, that's me. When you're helpless and when you're deep in your sin and when there's no hope and no help and nowhere to turn and there's nothing you can do and the wrath of God stands against you for your sins, there's only one place to turn and that's Christ. That's what all the Old Testament is funneling to is we need the king of righteousness to come and deliver because all of these prophets and priests and kings, notice all three are identified, have all failed. Kings have failed. The priests have failed. The prophets have failed. We need the one who will be the king of righteousness and prophet and priest for us. And think about how that works with what the New Testament says. Our, our, our translations will read propitiation or sacrifice of atonement. But we've worked on that word a few times when we did Leviticus. And remember, all that means is covering. Lamentations ends with your sins are uncovered before God. And Christ comes in and says, no, now your sins are covered before God. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now there is hope. Now there is rescue, not based upon ourselves. Not because we can hope in our good deeds, but because while we were helpless, Christ came. That's why Romans 4 verse 7, as he quotes the psalm, says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Because our Lord has all of the sins uncovered before him, that we're not getting away with anything. And what we need to do is cry out to Christ to be able to have those sins covered, to give our lives over to Him, to receive the help that we need, to receive forgiveness and receive atonement. Let me end on this then, that we would allow our trials and allow our pain to be teaching tools for our lives. To not neglect what God is doing in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of our pain. For that is where our joy comes from. This is learning all the worth of pain. This is the joy that we can find in trials. Is that we are able to learn steadfastness, grow in maturity, become transformed into the image of His Son. 
and that we go through those difficulties to be able to have that process happen. But that only can occur by reflecting on what God is doing and how we can become more like him and draw closer to him and rely upon him to carry us through. And that's where we find our joy. That's where our true satisfaction and joy lies, is to rest on when we are helpless, Christ died. And that is the hope that carries us through. Ooh, misspelling, hate that. But that's the hope that we have. Christ carries us through. That's what we rely upon. That's what we need. That's what God had done. And all the failure of the past, and all the devastation, and all the pain of the book of Lamentations all sits there to promote for a people to look forward to the King of Righteousness who would come and save the helpless if you just cry out to God and receive the forgiveness of sins. And that's our invitation to you tonight. As you pull your songbooks out, we sing an invitation song. We invite you to turn away from your sins, receive the grace of God by repentance. Turn away from a life of sin. Do not presume on the grace of God and think, oh, the people of God can do whatever I want to do. Absolutely not. We see the results of that kind of thinking. But the grace of God is there for those who will humble themselves and cry out to God for forgiveness. To turn away from the life of sin, confessing Jesus to be your Lord, your Master, the Savior, the Son of God, who came and died for your sins. To be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. What a hope that we have. What a glorious joy it is to be the people of God. Will you come to Him this very night while we stand and while we sing?